Good morning again, guys, and welcome again to everybody who's with us online. Let's all open our Bibles this morning. The book of Acts, chapter 21, verse 26. We're going to be uh, picking up our study in Acts, chapter 21, verse 26. We'll be going through chapter 22, verse 21 uh, here this morning. And at the end of chapter 21, in the beginning of chapter 22, what we see is uh, things beginning to unfold in Paul's life um, the way that had been prophesied. So Paul will be taken into custody uh, for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. And, but being bound for Christ wasn't a negative for Paul. It was just another opportunity to proclaim Christ. And so we're going to focus on that here this morning and gain some insight into how we can best share and uh, defend our faith. And so uh, we're going to see Paul arrested in the temple first, and then we'll get Paul's defense uh, before the people. So let's get into it. Acts chapter 21, verse 26 says this, Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each of them. So if you remember, Paul had taken a vow with several men. There was this uh, false accusation against Paul that, you know, he was, uh, even though he was a Jew, uh, he was called uh, to go out and minister not only to Gentiles but to Jews as well. But, but a lot of Gentiles became believers in various parts um, of the region all the way uh, even to Europe on his missionary journeys. And there was this false accusation that Paul was teaching uh, people that they didn't need Jews in particular. They didn't need to be Jews anymore and, and, and speaking negatively against uh, Judaism and things of that nature. And it, and it wasn't true. Paul never ceased to be a Jew. He was a Christian and the coming of the Messiah, the Messiah was Jewish and it was prophesied in the Jewish scriptures. And so Christianity is really the fulfillment uh, of God's promises uh, within Judaism. And so while we as Christians are not Jewish, at this time, a lot of these people were Jews who, who uh, placed their faith in Christ and became Christians, but that didn't mean that they ceased being Jews. And so the solution was, they said, you know, why don't you pay these men's expenses, complete the vow with them, uh, in the temple, and we see Paul in other parts of Scripture um, making vows, taking Jewish vows, and and participating, uh, continuing in uh, his his in Jewish practices and worship. And so this was nothing unusual for Paul. Paul agreed, and so uh, they went into the temple uh, to complete their vows. And so we know now from archaeological. Uh, work that has been done particularly on the Temple Mount uh, that would have existed, by the way, at the time of the Apostle Paul. What you see today, the platform is, uh, was the expansion that happened uh, around the time of the birth of Christ, um, just, well, several decades leading up to the birth of Christ and was for the most part completed by the time that Jesus was born. But uh, it was done under Herod the Great. And so that's the platform, and the temple uh, stood uh, on top of that platform, somewhere in the vicinity. Uh, there's a lot of debate about this. Uh, 
but somewhere in the vicinity of the Dome of the Rock. By the way, the Dome of the Rock is not a mosque. Uh, the mosque on the Temple Mount is the Al-Aqsa, which is at the uh, far end, the southern end uh, of the Temple Mount. The Dome of the Rock, the Gold Dome, uh, commemorates uh, the uh, belief um, in, in uh, Islam and in the Quran where uh, Muhammad uh, made his uh, journey, midnight journey, uh, to the furthest mosque, the Al-Aqsa, uh, which is why that mosque is named that. Well, it's not, but, you know, later on you kind of appropriate things and then give an explanation, but we don't have time for all of that. But the, the Dome of the Rock is where Muhammad supposedly ascended, uh, you know, up into heaven. And so they, they built this dome, the Jordanians later uh, covered it in gold, uh, and, and that's what you see there today. Well, that's in that vicinity was where the, the temple stood. But before you went into the temple, via uh, stairs from below, the main entrance was at the southern end, uh, what were known as the Holy Gates. In that vicinity on the southwestern corner, they found all of these ritual baths. So when you came, uh, it's right near what is known as the Robinson Arch. There are a couple of uh, prominent arches uh, that were discovered in the Western Wall, the Wilson Arch, the Robinson Arch, named for the archaeologist, archaeologist that discovered them. Near the Robinson Arch is where they found these uh, ritual baths. So Paul and his companions likely would have gone there. They would have uh, gone into the mikvahs, the ritual baths. Uh, they would have been ceremonially cleansed. Uh, and then if it was a Nazarite vow... Uh, which it quite possibly was, they would have had their hair cut off uh, before entering into the temple or at the entrance uh, of the temple. Then upon entering, it's referenced here, they would have made sacrifices as they completed that vow. And so if this is the Nazarite vow, that's what would have happened. Uh, otherwise, there are some other vows um, and they're completing this vow going into the temple. And it says, verse 27, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. So the idea is, is when the seven days, when the days of their purification uh, were completed, associated with their vow, uh, they, the, the Jews from Asia then uh, see Paul, they recognize him, and they stirred up a whole crowd uh, to, to take him into custody, to lay hands on him. Or as we see, they had worse intentions. Um, but you say, why, why are all these Jews from Asia there? Well, you've got to remember that three times a year, if you were an observant Jew, uh, you went to Jerusalem. Uh, you went in the spring, you went in the summer, you went in the fall. There were seven feasts, three in the spring, one in the summer, three in the fall. And you went for all of these feasts. So if you were from Asia and you were devout, you went because this is, and, and, and this is the beginning of the year, religiously speaking. Uh, this is the Passover feast. And so they're there for the Passover. So they, a lot of them no doubt recognized Paul uh, from his missionary journeys. And we know that uh, on those journeys <clears throat> that they were uh, a great source of opposition. Um, a lot of times the opposition that Paul dealt with, as we've seen in the book of Acts, it was from people who uh, were losing their livelihood a lot of times because other people were turning to Christ, people were being saved, people were being delivered from demonic possession and other things that were very prevalent back then at that particular time and in that particular place uh, especially. 
And so uh, we see this, you know, uh, a demon-possessed woman who had then, as a result of being demon-possessed, the ability to, uh, to tell fortunes and made a lot of money for the people who had enslaved her. Well, she is uh, set free from that. They lose their source of cash. They stir up an, uh, a, a whole uproar, uh, and a riot is caused. And so we see a lot of that. But the other cause we see quite a bit is uh, Jewish people who became jealous of the fact that people were turning to Christ and weren't necessarily turning to Judaism. And so they oftentimes, people that you would have expected to be uh, receptive to the gospel and to someone like the Apostle Paul, were not. And so they would be a great source of opposition. And so whether he was in Asia or whether he was back in Jerusalem, these same people uh, continue to be an issue for uh, the ministry of the Apostle Paul and for him personally. Verse 28. So they take hold uh, uh, of Paul there and they cried out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that, that Paul had brought into the temple. So um, you should know that in the temple, if you were a Gentile, you could only go so far. And if you went further, they would kill you. Um, so, you know, I, uh, you should know you can go anywhere you want in the church here, and uh, there's no penalty of death. Uh, but it uh, wasn't always the case. In fact, there was a sign, it's in... Um, uh, uh, it's in the Israel Museum uh, in Jerusalem, actually, uh, and it's uh, written, um, I, if memory serves me correct, I know it's in Greek, it may also be in Hebrew, uh, but uh, it was an inscription in stone that was on the Temple Mount uh, at the, uh, in the court of the, what was known as the Court of the Gentiles. So when you came into the temple, you came into the court of the Gentiles. Anyone could go into the court of the Gentiles. It meant, you, know, you didn't have to be Jewish, uh, by, by, uh, as the name implies, to go into the court of the Gentiles. But at the edge of the court of the Gentiles in what was known as the, um, the court of the women uh, was a sign that said, under penalty of death, if you're not a Jew, you could go no further. So they were basically reserving the right to, if you went past that point, to kill you. Just going to be on you at that point. That's, that's kind of how the, the, the sign was. So if you were a Gentile, you went there. If you were a man or a woman who was a Jew, you could go into the next area, known as the court of the women. If you were a man, then you could go into the next area, the court of the men. And if you were a priest, then you could go even further. And if you were the high priest, you could go all the way into the Holy of Holies, but then only once a year. So, you know, depending on who you were, you did or didn't have access to certain parts of the temple. So, because they saw Paul with a Gentile in the city, they supposed um, that he had brought them into the temple and, and then they caused a whole uproar, verse 30. All the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. So false accusation, supposition, violence, uh, completely hospitable. 
Not exactly what you would expect from people who were supposed to be worshiping God. This is a thing that can be forgotten. You know, this isn't any old place. This was the house of God. And yet this is what was going on uh, in the house of God at this particular point in time. And so, unfortunately, it gets worse. Verse 31, it says also that they were seeking to kill him. And news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. So one man, Paul, had stirred up the entire city. Six times so far in the book of Acts, we have seen how the ministry of the Apostle Paul caused uproars and riots. Let me just say this, if you were ministering and once or twice, you caused a riot, Uh, that would maybe uh, cause you to question yourself a little bit. But six times, six times now Paul has uh, caused uproars and riots. And, you know, you can look back, you can see these all throughout the book of Acts, chapter 14, verse 19, chapter 16, verse 22, chapter 17, um, verse 5, and also in chapter 17, twice in chapter 17, verse 13, chapter 19, uh, verse 29 here, Paul's ministry causing riots. When you preach the gospel, you're going to stir people up. Ideally, it would be for good. Ideally, you... You want to stir people up for good, but that is not always going to be the case. And we've got to wonder if as we serve the Lord, as we minister, um, particularly as we're preaching the gospel, whether you're preaching the gospel uh, at church, uh, you know, you're sharing, you teach children's ministry, or uh, you serve in the men's or women's ministry, or, or uh, another type of ministry, or whether you have your own ministry, or whether you're just ministering to family, or to co-workers, or to, um, to students, fellow students, or whatever the case may, may be. But if, if there isn't a stirring, we have to wonder if we're really preaching the gospel, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6, there in uh, verse 26, he said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. So what you got to wonder, we don't go out, by the way, and look for controversy. Um, You know, no one wants to to, uh, get people upset um, or unnecessarily offend. Um, We don't seek to do that. We don't set out to do that. But also, as we're preaching the gospel, we don't worry about it either. Because we know that whether it's once or six times or whatever the case may be, if you're serving the Lord and there are people that don't like it, um, well, that's not your concern. Your concern is if everybody thinks you're doing a great job. Because then you got to ask yourself, well, listen, if, if everybody agrees with me, um, you know, am I, am I actually preaching the gospel? And, and so you've got to kind of check yourself and see where you're at. And, 
Am I preaching the gospel or am I just saying things that kind of sound right but aren't necessarily completely true and so that they're not offensive and so everybody say, yeah, I can get on board with that. Because you can go out and say things to people, you know, um, hey, you need faith and, and prayer is good and I'm, I'm saying some prayers for you. And most people will be like, okay, yeah, faith, right, faith is you know, praying, oh, who doesn't, you know, there's very few people that would say, well, yeah, don't, you know, don't do that. Okay, they're, they're out there, but there's not very many. But the moment you start talking about God and the moment you mention Jesus and the moment you mention sin and the moment you mention salvation and needing to receive Jesus Christ, the moment you talk about heaven and the moment that you talk about hell, people get upset. <clears throat> I remember way back, this one's stuck in my mind I was uh, in college at the time, and I was at the house of a friend, and he and his sister, neither of them were believers. And, uh, and we just got into discussing um, God and Jesus and the Bible, and I was, before you knew it, I was sharing the gospel with them, and his sister was getting kind of emotional, and she was tearing up. And then I hear, you know, mom yell down from upstairs, you know, get out of my house, you know. And uh, so preaching the gospel was what was needed. But, you know, sometimes people get stirred up. They might get emotional. They might get upset. The good news is, is that a month or so after that, the young man got saved in the middle of a parking lot. We were sharing, and he finally accepted Christ in the middle of a parking lot in Pasadena, California. We happened to be uh, there for some event. And uh, so, you know, the Lord was working, but, but, you know, those kind of things happen. You're going to share the gospel, you know, and people are going to say, I don't want to hear it. And you're not, you know, you're not welcome back here anymore. I can remember <clears throat> being at the uh, Air Force Academy. I did a, a funeral at the Air Force Academy uh, several years back, and um, you should know this, that uh, the Air Force Academy is just as liberal as any other college institution today, maybe more so. And so I was there, and I don't know if you've ever been in the chapel in the Air Force Academy, but the pulpit is up, it's marble, solid marble, and it's up here, and everybody's down here, and this was uh, a high, uh, the wife of one of the senior people at the academy. So the entire chapel was full with all of the cadets. And there, this row right here, I was, the pulpit's over here. And so this row here was all generals, all the top Air Force generals. I think the first row, you had to have at least four stars to be in that row, you know, three or four, there, all of them. And, you know, uh, at a funeral, I preached the gospel because people are, aware they're aware of their mortality it's one of the best times the best opportunities it's one of the few times that people will stop and think about death because they have to and so we share the gospel not in an offensive way but we share the gospel and i can tell you what as i was preaching there that row was not happy it was it was visible they were not happy but hey i'm not in the air force you know, <laughs> so that's the beauty. And that's why whole, through a whole series of events, I, I shouldn't have been there, but the Lord 
did this thing where he roped me into this thing. You know, he always does that. And, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, that's where I am. I shouldn't have been there. I, you know, I wasn't anything to, you know, to the Air Force or anybody else. It just through a series of events, I wound, the Lord put me there. And then we went out, and I don't know if you've seen the, the graveyard at the academy. It's probably not a big, uh, it should be, but it's probably not part of most tours of the academy. But they have a, a, a cemetery there that looks a lot like Arlington. It's beautiful. It's an incredible cemetery there. So we left the chapel. We went to the, the graveside. And uh, as we were walking with the casket out to the hearse to go to the graveside, uh, a captain walked up to me very quickly, very quietly, you know, Praise the Lord, good job, thank you, you know. Walked away as quick as he could. Uh, then, so we went, did the, the whole uh, graveside portion. It, it, I mean, you know, it's, uh, military funerals are, are quite, a, uh, they're quite um, amazing, actually. And so then afterwards, in the uh, officers' club, they had a, uh, you know, a reception afterwards. And let me just tell you what, like at the reception, uh, I had l- lots of space. <laughs> All the space that I could have needed, you know, nobody was, I, th- nobody officially talked to me. One, one star female general, I'll never forget it, came up and said something while I was in the buffet line, so, you know, covert uh, you know, she was just getting food too, I'm sure. And, you know, she was a believer. But no one was ready to share their faith. Their careers, no doubt, on the line. Their future, the atmosphere was very clear there. I imagine it's only increased. And I don't imagine it's just the Air Force. I suspect it's probably all of the military academies. Uh, and probably the military in general uh, to a degree, in general, that's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> but um, the point is, is that, you know, you could go in and say things that, you know, no one's going to be offended by. You just, you just don't quite go there. You know, you leave some things out. You don't, you're kind of vague. Some people are pretty good at that. But that's not preaching the gospel. So we can't fear stirring people up. We shouldn't, you know, listen, last thing I want to do is upset people, but I'm okay with upsetting people if they're going to be upset by the truth, because at some point you needed to hear the truth. I needed to hear the truth, and if we didn't hear the truth, how would we respond in the right way and be saved? The Bible says that if the the trumpet doesn't sound a clear call, who's going to prepare for battle? In other words, you know, you can play Yankee Doodle on the trumpet, Trumpet was different. It was a shofar back then. And no one's getting ready for battle. But if you sound the battle cry, then everybody knows what to do. And you and I need to do the same thing when it comes to the preaching uh, of the gospel. And so Paul was ready to do that. And in the process, he stirred a lot of people up. Now, it wasn't uncommon for the Jews to be stirred up uh, in the temple. In fact, the Temple Mount is still extremely volatile to this day. I've seen just in what little time I've spent on the Temple Mount, I've seen riots nearly break out on the Temple Mount over basically nothing. 
It, the place is a tinderbox. When you go to Jerusalem and then you go to the Temple Mount, you have this sense, and, and I see people nodding, and I know you guys have been there, you've seen the, You have this sense that you are at the epicenter of humanity. That you are at the center of, of everything spiritually. And so there is a, an unseen, I believe, realm that is there. I don't believe I know, but, but, but a battle that is going on and, and it seems to be perhaps most pronounced at that point. And that's why you see the, a lot of times the things that, that you see uh, go on in that place. And it was true even back then. So what the Romans did is the Romans built the Antonia Fortress uh, for this exact reason. It was adjacent to the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. It overlooked the Temple Mount, and they at, at all times watched over the Temple Mount to, you know, if a riot got started, they were ready. They had stairs that went right down from the fortress into the Temple Mount, and they were ready to go and, and, and deal with it. And, and it's the same way today. Uh, to get into the Temple Mount, you have to go through... Uh, Metal detectors, uh, today you go up uh, a uh, kind of a ramp up to the Temple Mount uh, if you enter in from the Western Wall Complex, um, and you go through uh, the Jerusalem Police Checkpoint there, um, metal detectors and everything, like I said, and then you go into the Temple Mount. Uh, if you exit the way that we typically do, you go out near what is called the St. Stephen's Gate or the Lion's Gate, uh, and you, you leave on that side over what is uh, referred to as the Via Dolorosa. Um, but when you come into the, the Temple Mount there, and, and it is secure, there's security at that other end as well, and there's a, a few other entrances also. But, but the main entrance, you know, there are all kinds of police there, and you walk in there, and there's, there's riot shields stacked up, and, and they're all armed and everything, because if a riot breaks out, they grab their shields and they run up that ramp into the Temple Mount and try to figure out who's trying to kill who. And every once in a while, you know, you have, um, you have uh, uh, Muslims on the Temple Mount and, and they do something or you have a group of Jewish people that go up on the Temple Mount and, and they try to do something maybe as simple as pray on the Temple Mount and, and, and then it's, it causes a riot. Something as simple as praying on the Temple Mount can co- has caused riots. By the way, if you or I go on the Temple Mount, uh, you can't wear any kind of religious clothing, nothing with any kind of uh, Christian symbols, no uh, visible jewelry, uh, no Bibles, no visible prayer, anything like that. It's all strictly controlled uh, on the Temple Mount. Well, they never know, but I'm praying. Uh, but, you know, but they're, usually when our group goes up there, there's somebody following, listening to everything that I say. Making sure that I don't say just, you know, something just wrong and, and that they're offended by. Usually it's a, a, a Muslim person because the actual mount itself is controlled by the Jordanians. So uh, they're monitoring everything. They're kind of setting the rules when you can come and when you can't. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a powder keg up there. And so the Romans saw this and they built this, this fortress. Herod actually same Herod uh, that built the Temple Mount, um, he, he built uh, or he named the fortress and obviously allowed them to build it and, and named it uh, after his patron, Mark Antony. So it was the Antonia uh, Fortress. And so they're watching and 
they see this whole thing erupting with the Apostle Paul, and down come the Romans, uh, verse 32, uh, the soldiers and the centurions, and uh, when they saw the commander, the soldiers, they, they stopped beating Paul. That was nice. And um, <laughs> the commander came near and took him, commanded him to be bound with two chains, and he asked who he was and what he had done. Some among the multitude cried one thing. So there's people beating him. They don't even know why they're beating him. Yeah, it's just, you know, mob mentality. And, you know, so some people said one thing. Some people said another, verse 34. So when he could not ascertain the truth, uh, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. The multitude of the people followed after crying out, away with him. And as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak with you? And he replied, can you speak Greek? So at this point, the, the commander is surprised. Paul asks him in Greek if he can have a word with him. And he's surprised um, that Paul can speak Greek because verse 38, he says, are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? So things had been so confused that he thought that Paul is a, or Paul was a, an Egyptian rebel leader and, and uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. He says, guys, I'm, I'm from Highlands Ranch. You know, we're so blah. I'm, you know, it's like a, I'm from Parker, you know, no mean city. I'm just a simple person. And, uh, and, and I'm not from any, you know, I'm not from a city of, of rebels or anything like that. And uh, so he says, I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. So... You see Paul, and, and uh, Paul was, he'll talk about it here in a minute, but um, he was uh, quite educated and had traveled and ministered throughout the world, very uh, adept, obviously, as a Jew in Hebrew, um, equally able to speak and to write in Greek, and, and his language skills opened doors for him with the Romans, um, with his own people. And so now he switches over to the Hebrew language. Uh, by the way, there is some debate as to what the Hebrew language was at this particular point in time. Um, the word there is uh, Ibrady, which uh, means, uh, uh, it means just that. It means the, the Hebrew dialect. So the idea could be um, Hebrew itself or the language, the dialect that they spoke at that time uh, in Jerusalem, which some people suggest was Aramaic. You know, uh, I will just say this, that uh, that's one of those things that smart people started saying a while ago, and everybody just assumed it was fact. In fact, if you see, if you watch the movie The Last, uh, or uh, The Passion of the Christ, if you saw the movie The Passion of the Christ with... Um, uh, Mel Gibson, right? The Mel Gibson movie there and Jim, Jim Caviezel and others. Um, when they speak in their subtitles, uh, the language they used is Aramaic. And that's because a lot of the, you know, one school of thought is, is that that was the language. So this can refer to that uh, based on the way it's, 
it's said here, or it can mean that they spoke Hebrew uh, proper. It's, it's, it's kind of one of those things that's difficult to prove either way, but people tend to have strong opinions about them or about it. Chapter 22, verse 1 says this. Uh, Paul begins his defense now. Uh, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense. He says, verse 2, uh, or it says, verse 2, when they heard that he had spoken to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. So the fact that he was speaking to them in their own language, ah, he's not some Egyptian rebel, he's not this or that. Or that. He, he, he's a Jew, quite eloquent uh, one at that. And so the frenzy calmed down for a little bit. They're willing to, to hear him out, at least for a moment. He said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Uh, that was in, um, in, south, uh, in southern Turkey. Uh, was where in the empire Tarsus uh, was located. Uh, and he says, but brought up in this city, that is Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous toward uh, God as you all are today. So, you know, theological discussions have their place. We've talked about a few things already. We'll talk about a few things uh, more. But sometimes the best response, the best defense, if you will, of the faith, the best way to share your faith is your story, is your testimony. In other words, if you want to say, well, you know, how do I even go about doing that, um, why are you a Christian and how were you saved? That's your testimony. If you want to share the gospel with somebody, that's one of the easiest and one of the best ways to do it. Why do you believe in Christ and how were you saved? It's good to think about that. It's good to look back uh, upon that and remember that. But also, if someone wanted to know, how would you share that with them? And so that's really, as you look at this here, that's what the Apostle Paul does. He starts out, he says, look, I'm a Jew. And not only am I a Jew, but I would say Paul is a super Jew. You go to Jerusalem, one of my favorite t-shirts is the super Jew t-shirt. It's the Superman logo, but it has the Jewish Orthodox hat on the top of it with the uh, ringlets hanging down the side. They, they sell it everywhere. It's the Super Jew t-shirt. That's what they call it, the Super Jew t-shirt. Well, Paul was the OG Super Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was brought up as the pupil of the most famous rabbi in, in Israel and in Jerusalem. In, in the world, really, at that time, even to people outside of Israel. So, you know, he, he studied at the best school with the best teachers, and he was in the inner circle, he, the inner circle of, of, of Judaism and doctrine and, and theology. Gamaliel was the president of the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. Now, the high priest was the head of the Sanhedrin, but they had a president. And Gamaliel, the rabbi, the, the uh, Talmud tells us, was the president. The Mishnah says he was one of the greatest teachers in all of Israel. So he was the guy, and Paul was his student. So Paul says, look, I, I know this stuff, just like you do. And, and he says, I was zealous, just like you. 
you want to kill me, I get that. I wanted to kill people too. We're the same. We, we, we had the same fervor and misguided zeal. Verse 4, he says, I per- persecuted this way. That's what they call Christianity, the way. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons. Verse 5, the high priest, he knew, the high priest knew him. He bears me witness and all the council, that is all the San- Sanhedrin, all the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there. I was going around trying to arrest every single Christian anywhere. That was my mission. That was my calling. He says, now it happened, verse 6, as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. So Paul, uh, in this one-on-one conversation with Jesus Christ, he surrendered to the Lord and he talks about you know, how he became a believer in Jesus Christ and why, verse 11. It says, since I could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand, he says, of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. And then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. And then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. So we get all kinds of additional insight, actually, not previously recorded about the conversation uh, between Ananias uh, and Saul. And we not only discover that Saul, uh, Paul, heard the voice of Christ, but he actually saw him. Verse 15, he says, You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So Ananias was the right, God picked the right guy to go and to minister there in the beginning uh, to the apostle Paul. And he recognized that there was no time to wait, no time to waste in terms of salvation. Now, by the way, if you look at verse 16, some people look at this verse and they see, you have to be baptized to be saved. Because it says here, the English translation is, is, uh, is a little bit of an issue, at least in most translations. He says, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So a lot of people look at that and they say, see, you've got you to believe and you've got to be baptized. And both of those together, your sins are washed away and, and, and you're saved. This doctrine is called baptismal regeneration. And it means that you place your faith in Christ, but some people incorrectly say, falsely say, that in addition to believing in Christ, you have to be baptized uh, in order to be saved. That, you know, that, that completes the process. The problem is, is that that adds to uh, grace. It adds works to grace. Baptism is a, is a work. It's not a work of salvation, but it is something that you do. 
And the Bible teaches, you, teaches us that we're not saved based on what we do, but what we believe, and specifically whom we believe in. Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 uh, and 9. He said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So there is no work, and if we add any work, even a religious work, to grace, Paul says elsewhere in Romans, you either have grace or works. And if you had works to grace, grace is no longer grace. And if you have grace to works, works is no longer works. They're, they're two separate issues. That's what he says. So you can't mingle, you know, the two when it comes to salvation. Now, what's interesting is, is that in, in the, the Greek text here, um, it's a little bit clearer. And a literal rendering of this passage is, having arisen, be baptized. And have your sins washed off by calling on the name of the Lord. So if you, if you just take what the passage says literally, rather than the way it has been translated, and I don't think the translators meant to give the wrong idea. It's just, you know, I mean, can you imagine? It's a big book. And, you know, if you're translating, you're human, and you're bound to do things. Uh, I would suggest to you that if someone like me had translated the, uh, the text, uh, we would be having conversations like this a lot more. You know, well, what it should have said was this. So I'm, it's really remarkable, but there are these places where you're like, yeah, yeah, most translations don't really do this passage justice, or they inadvertently cause some problems. In 1 Peter chapter 3, one of my favorite passages on this subject one of the places that I often go so that people can understand the different roles of belief and baptism and, and, and how they work together. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, he, he talks about the type of those who were saved at the time of Noah, those who were saved on the ark, right? And, and he talks about them, and he says there is an antitype. Anti means for. And he's just been talking about Noah in the past. And he says there, and he talked about how they were saved, the, those on the ark, through baptism. And the point is, is that it was a picture of how they were saved through the, you know, in the ark, through the water. By the way, that was all a picture of Christ. You know, you're either on the ark or you're not. And so he says, there is an antitype which now saves us baptism. Okay. Now, if he stopped there, we would really be confused, but he says this, not the removal of the filth of the flesh. In other words, not some kind of ceremonial washing, which all Jews, including Peter, understood, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, you're saved by faith in Christ, by believing in Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, and you're baptized. What he's talking about here is not literal baptism. He's talking about baptism into Christ. You believe in Christ. You believe in Christ. Baptism, of which baptism, in a physical sense, represents. It's a picture of. So people say, well, you know, but... In, in, in Mark chapter 16, it says this. In fact, they say in Mark chapter 16, Jesus says this, and they're right. Jesus did say this. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But then what does it say? But he who does not believe will be condemned. 
Now, if Jesus had said, but he who does not believe and is baptized will be condemned, or if Jesus had said, he who is not baptized will be condemned, then we would know the emphasis is on baptism. So what Jesus is saying is you believe, and so closely tied to belief is baptism, that virtually every believer is going to be, hopefully, and, and should be baptized as a natural desire of what's taking place in their heart. But he's not saying that that completes the work. Belief completes the work. Or a lack of belief doesn't complete the work. And if we're to say, well, you know, you've got to be baptized to be saved, then we've got a problem. Because there was one guy who wasn't baptized. At least one guy who was never baptized. There's the thief on the cross. In Luke chapter 23, verse 43 He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? Maybe we can sprinkle you. (laughs) No. Jesus says to him, assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So, baptism is important. But baptism has no role in actually our salvation. Jesus completed the work on the cross. He said, it is finished, paid in full. So we don't complete it somehow by being baptized, but in faith and in obedience, that's a logical step for us, for everybody who can take it. But I've seen people come to Christ literally on their deathbed. They're not going to be baptized. You know, people that are so senior sometimes that, you know, that we've ministered to in nursing homes, that, you know, they, they, baptism would be risky for them, you know, in a physical sense. I mean, there's, you know, maybe other ways you can do it, but, but there's some people that are just, they're just not going to be baptized, and they're saved. But for most of us, it's, it's not only perfectly normal and acceptable, um, it's something that we should want to do. So verse 17, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple. Paul continues that I was in a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. So the Lord tells Paul, look, not, they're not going to listen to you. And Paul says, what do you mean? Of course they will. I, I, why wouldn't they? They know all. He, he genuinely thought that they would be receptive. And, you know, that seems logical. But it wasn't. It, it, it wasn't going to happen that way. Verse 21. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Oh. They listened to everything. Everything was Pretty much cool up until that point, until he said the G word. That, they hated that word. They hated the Gentiles. And the moment that he said that God sent him to the Gentiles, oh, it was all over. We'll see more next time as we continue our study. But I will say this, that people stirred up is not necessarily a bad thing. When it comes to preaching the gospel, we see that here. It can be an opportunity. It may mean that you're right in the middle of God's will. And being 
in that place, Paul uses one of our greatest tools in sharing the good news. Our testimony. Our story. Your story. I would say this. We notice that just because we don't get a positive response doesn't mean that we've failed. And you should remember that. Uproar or sharing your testimony, if you, if you get thrown out, if there isn't a res- positive response, it doesn't mean that you failed. In fact, um, if you've done what God called you to do and you're faithful to preach the gospel and to share his word, then you have succeeded. And bound or not, we keep moving forward in victory in Christ to the next thing that he calls us to do. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word and your encouragement this morning. We thank you that we can learn from the experiences of those who have gone before. We pray that we would be faithful not to water down the truth, that we would be faithful to share the hope that is in us and why we have it and why we've placed our faith and trust in your Son. We pray that you would just use each person for your glory, that you would draw us closer to you, Father, through your Son. And while we're praying this morning, if you've come in here and you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ today, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. If you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, what are you waiting for? If you recognize that you're a sinner, if you recognize that your sin has separated you from God, if you recognize that the only thing that you can do about your sin is to receive Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for your sins and for forgiveness of sins, and that that's the only way that you can know that you have eternal life and will be in heaven and not in hell, but you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, today is the day, now is the time. And I'd like to pray with you as we close. If, if God is drawing you to himself, my plea is to respond. To say as Paul said, what shall I do, Lord? To submit yourself to him if he's speaking to you. If God is calling to you and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, I'd like to pray with you right now. I invite you right now just to To raise your hand where you're sitting, we're going to pray. God's going to hear your prayer. But if you haven't, you take this this opportunity. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your church. Thank you for your people. Thank you, most importantly, for your son who has reconciled us to yourself. Father, we pray that you would fill us afresh today by your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.